0: Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, a podcast all about leadership, change, and personal growth. The goal to help you lead like never before in your church or in your business. And now your host, Carrie Newhoff. Well, hey everybody, and welcome to episode 320 of the podcast, brought to you today by the Planning Center and Rethink Leadership, a premier gathering in Atlanta in May. And my guest today, oh my goodness, uh, I'll tell you, I'm so excited about this episode because my wife's on the show. Yeah, Tony Newhoff and then a very, very good longtime friend of ours, Dr. Rob Meter, are joining me as my guests. They're actually launching their own podcast like now. It's uh, on the personal side of things. It's called The Smart Family Podcast. It's all about how to love being home. And there have been seasons in my life where home was not a lot of fun. Tony and I talk about that and where I felt like I was winning at work but losing at home. And what I've come to believe is that if you are winning at work and losing at home, you're losing. And so Rob is a pediatrician specializing in childhood anxiety disorders. He heads up a clinic and uh, does an incredible job. I talk to him all the time. I mean, he and his wife Rose are good family friends of ours, of friends of Tony and mine. And you know, when I'm writing about something or teaching about something, I'll often call Rob and just say, hey, what's the deal? And I mean, childhood anxiety and depression are on the rise, Rob's an expert in that. And then my wife, Tony, she is a family law attorney and also a pharmacist. So she has spent her life trying to help people get well. And so they bring their expertise together and we talk about all things, family, home, personal life, raising kids, because that's the other side of leadership. And if you are losing at home, but you think you're winning at work, I really do think you're losing. Uh, I hope you will subscribe to their podcast. They have a brand new one uh, called The Smart Family Podcast. You can find it at smartfamilypodcast.com and of course, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. They talk to clinicians, pediatricians, psychologists, thought leaders, all about things home. So that's the Smart Family Podcast, which launches this week, and you can get it anywhere you get your podcasts. I hope you'll listen and subscribe. And man, I'm so excited. It is almost time. It's getting close for Rethink Leadership. We have the best lineup we have ever had of speakers. Simon Sinek is joining us. Mark Batterson, John Acuff, Chris Hodges and so many others. I'm gonna be hosting it along with John Cuff. And uh, here's what we're gonna be talking about. We're gonna be talking about some of the biggest challenges leaders have, and it's a unique gathering. It's unique in the sense that you're sitting around tables with other leaders. It is open only to senior leaders. So in the church context, it's open to senior pastors, campus pastors, executive pastors, and also business leaders. You can bring your senior team with you. And we give you lots of time to discuss and interact with people. We're also bringing Gordon McDonald uh, for this event. So I'm super excited about that and would love to see you at Rethink Leadership. Now, because you're podcast listeners, we have an exclusive discount for you. If you register your team today at RethinkLeadership.com, use the coupon code rl 20 carry R-L-20-C-A-R-E-Y and you'll get 20% off if you register by February 29th. Question for you, what are you using to manage your teams? I know for years I've used Planning Center and it's a tool that that is just it continues to morph and sort of the industry standard. Uh, many of you probably use it. If you have it, you should check it out because they keep morphing their features. Uh, The Planning Center app as it exists right now even allows your volunteers to set up blockout dates when they're out of town or they just need a break. Uh, And that can really help you avoid burnout with your volunteers and staff. Also, Planning Center now makes it really easy to follow up with volunteers, send thank you emails, track who has RSVP'd for an event or practice, And using the People app in Planning Center, your staff can use Planning Center's powerful workflow and list tools for following up with new visitors, volunteers, or even prayer requests that come your way. And their support team is here to help. They have a super fast response time. If you haven't yet checked out Planning Center, Make sure you do it. It's pretty simple. Just go to planning.center. Finally, before we jump into the conversation, we got a brand new feature on uh, the podcast. If you listen to the very end, which I know many of you do, that's what the stats tell us, I've got this new segment that we're simply calling What I'm Thinking About. And uh, a lot of you are saying, hey, we'd love to hear a little bit more of you. I try to give the floor to the guests during the interview. And uh, so I'm going to share what I'm thinking about the value of email and why it's sexier than most people think, particularly if you want to get a message out. So I'm going to talk about that at the very end of the podcast. But in the meantime, let's dive into my conversation with my wife, Tony Newhoff, and our good friend, pediatrician, Dr. Rob Meter, all about your family, your home life, and how to make things better. Well, Tony and Rob, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, hey, Gary.
1: Thanks for having us.
0: Yeah, it's the first episode I've ever had a wife and a long time a wife that's the wrong way to say it isn't it <laughs> i've had one which like number wife
1: would that be
0: uh, i be number one <laughs> only one yeah my wife tony welcome to the show thank you and uh, my longtime friend rob meter we've known mm. each other what 15 16 years a long yeah. time
2: 16 years now that's yep. a while yep. yeah since
0: 2003 And you guys are starting your own podcast, which is Mm -hmm. super exciting, called the Smart Family Podcast. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we're totally excited about it.
1: Yeah, can't wait to get started.
0: We'll talk about that a little bit at the end. But I wanted to have you guys on for a couple of reasons. One is we have, you know, I think some fascinating conversations. And the two of you combining to do this podcast, I think you bring some really interesting areas of expertise. So Tony, uh, you, we met in law school a long, long time ago. Uh, You're a lawyer, you practice family law for a number of years, and then Rob, you're a pediatrician. So give us the brief bio, if you could each give us a little bit of a bio, um, just professionally about what
2: you do. And Rob, why don't we start with you, and then Tone, we'll uh, we'll switch to you. All right, great. Thanks, Gary. I feel a little bit like the guy who's, you know, you guys are on a date, and I kind of jumped in their car because I wanted to see the same Yeah, where's Rose? Come on. (laughs) Where's your wife? Like the awkward third guy. Uh Uh-huh, uh-huh. But uh, no thanks um uh, thanks Carrie for having us and um like you said I'm a pediatrician I've been uh, a pediatrician for 16 years now and did my training at uh, McMaster University in Hamilton uh for pediatrics actually for medicine and then the pediatrics at the University of Western Ontario in London Ontario and then afterwards we um uh, my wife and I both fell in love with the Aurelia area and we mm-hmm. came here and uh It was a great place we figured to raise kids and to live, um, but also a great community to join in. And we've been here ever since. And I do uh, general pediatrics, which is really um, a bit of everything. And that's in fact how I started out about 16 years ago. And for about 13 years, I did that. And about about five years ago, I started focusing uh, almost exclusively on behavior and mental health issues in kids. There was a huge need for that in this area. And so five years ago, um, we decided that that would be the focus of what I do. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, I've kind of been doing it all along, um, but now this was an opportunity for me to do it full-time. And I've been doing it full-time uh, ever since. So on
0: your business card, like, I mean, not that doctors have business cards, but like- <laughs> don't need business what, cards. What, no, you really don't. It's like, you just have a lineup that lasts for months yeah, out of your office. Yeah, um, but what would you say your specialty is? Pediatric anxiety, mental health? Like, what, what do you call it?
2: Well, I would say I'm a general pediatrician with a focus uh-huh. on behavior and mental health issues.
0: In children and in, teenagers? In
2: children and adolescents, yep. Uh, I mean, most right. of my See, kids- She used that technical term, adolescent. <laughs> it's
0: like, okay, that's great.
2: Yeah, no, it's uh, that's a real term. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't meant to be too technical. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs>
0: And Rob, you're totally into cycling too. You're oh, yeah. one of the the people who kind of spurred me on. Well, ah. continue to spur me on.
2: Okay, good. I'm glad that's still the case. But yeah, uh, yeah, no, well, I love cycling in this area. You know what it's like over here. It's some nice roads, some beautiful scenery, and for me, that's an escape. That's a time mm-hmm. for me to be by myself most of the time, ride my bike, um, just clear my head and uh, get some thoughts out and think about things. Uh, but it's also, of course, exercise, and you got to find that balance in life mm-hmm. to really do your job well. And as you know, I also have a family. So to be a dad and a father at the same time, when you have a busy career, you got to look after yourself too and get some good exercise and stay healthy.
0: So your wife's also a physician. She is. Uh, We met in law school. You guys met in med school. Yeah. How about that? (laughs) Similar (laughs) story. Isn't that funny? And, uh, And she's also worked in different degrees, but also worked. And how many kids do you have?
2: we have four kids. That's legit. Yep. So four kids. So um, I always say uh, I have a practice at work, but I really practice parenting at home. <laughs> so it's a it's a great um, way to, to really experience the real side of pediatrics. Yeah. I, I kind of joke around sometimes because when I was a resident and a pediatrics in those early years before we had kids, I look back now and I laugh at some of the advice I would give like young moms, for example, about breastfeeding. Uh-huh. It's like, like, oh, I know, right? Like I'm yeah, yeah, exactly. 20 year old guy, you know, just kind of <laughs> figuring out, you know, uh, life and such. And it's like, like, I'm the guy who's going to give you advice on how to breastfeed that only, mm-hmm. only once I, uh, once I had, we had four kids of our own and been through it four times. I feel like I had some credibility in that area. <laughs> A little bit. So, and even then, you know, I, I, it was, through our experience as a as a mother and father, that would, yeah,
0: I'm not tempted to write on that subject. I know no. nothing about it or podcast yeah. on it. Okay, well, anything
2: else in the Well, quick all bio? that to say is that yeah. you know one, when when uh, being a parent yourself, I think really makes you realize like what are the real issues. I mean, it's a uh, yeah, it's allowed me to see uh, my kids grow up and to go through these things in real life. It's one thing to do them in practice. It's one thing to Kind of do from behind a a desk or or a notepad. Uh, It's a whole other thing to experience it yourself in life. And uh, Mm -hmm. I'm not the expert. I'm not the pro um, when it comes to day to day. But um, it it is a learning experience every single day.
0: Yeah, and the age range now for your kids is Maddie thirteen. Fourteen. Uh, she's
2: fourteen. Ah! Yeah, yeah. Holy fourteen. Cow. So 14. we had our kids in real rapid succession. <laughs> yeah, you did. Um, they're they're all t- they're all four between the ages of ten and fourteen right now. Yeah. So we joke around sometimes. Uh, some people at you know at the hospital thought that really Rose was pregnant for four years straight. You know, she was no, oh, she pretty much was. I remember pretty,
0: that face. <laughs> so she no, was. She was like again. pregnant again. Uh, yeah. Home from the so hospital for
2: a day. we and were pregnant. lucky yeah. we had we had no mm-hmm. problem starting a family, and so. Once we figured that out, we just kept on going. And so four kids later, and here we are. (laughs) We did stop at four. I mean, Rose initially wanted way more than four. (laughs) And it's like, let's just do one at a time. Okay, there
0: you go. So lots of street cred there too. Okay, so Tony, um, let's talk about some of your background as well. Just, I know a lot of my listeners already know something about you, but let's assume not. You and I met in law school and pick it up from there.
1: Yes, we did meet in law school, and um, yeah, that was an interesting three years uh, to get us started. Um, we met at law school. We were married during law school. Uh, we had our first son uh, 10 days after I finished my final exams. Yeah, I was talk school. about
0: great timing. I mean, <laughs> yeah. you guys had four kids in four years. We like timed that to the second. Of course, he came a month early.
1: Mm-hmm. But yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, yeah, but definitely. literally
0: ten days after final exams, boom, we're parents.
1: Yeah, Ta-da. that that month that I was, was supposed to be reserved mm-hmm. for getting the nursery ready, yeah. getting everything in place. So all that went out the window. Yeah, before that, I've I studied pharmacy at mm-hmm. University of Toronto, and so I've went through um, the program at U of T. Then I did a residency in hospital pharmacy, and it was after that I went to law school. So, uh, so pharmacy was, has been a part of my career all the way along, even through law school and um, practiced part-time pharmacy. And over the years, um, after I went back to get my bar admissions, became licensed as a lawyer and practiced both pharmacy and law over the years. So my career has taken a few twists and turns, Uh Um, practiced mainly in hospital settings for several years. And then I, uh, I switched to divorce law. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was at that point, i I just felt that I was ready for full-time law practice and also ready to help people solve their problems. This was the goal,
0: I, right? Let's try yeah. to keep you together. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it didn't always work.
1: So, uh, so it was a very eye-opening area of practice and yeah. it, it did give me this um, sense of urgency over helping struggling marriages uh, and helping families.
0: Yeah, and then uh, I think you can say this. I mean, I don't want to dwell too much on introductions, but uh, you stepped away from law a year ago, and now you're full-time working on a book, right? To try mm. to help people stay together and not get to a lawyer's office. Uh,
1: that is, yep, that is the point. That's this book, <laughs> this labor of love, I'm going to call it. Yeah. Um, we we don't have the title completely, 100% nailed down, but we think it'll be something like, I didn't sign up for this.
0: Mm-hmm. And based on, on your years of practice and family law, and you're also trained as a mediator, so.
1: Yes, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, actually, just for complete disclosure, I am in the process of becoming qualified as a mediator. Um, so there's a number of practice hours and so wow. on, but I've been working on that for- Training uh, as a mediator. Yes. Far more
0: qualified than your mm. husband. Okay, all right. So what I want to do, I want to go through some of the issues and thanks for the bio, that's really helpful um but i want to i want to use your clinical glasses you as a divorce attorney who just listened to hundreds of heartbreaking stories for years tony and then and then rob every single day for years now you run into parents who show up with their kids and obviously you have your share of normal medical issues but as you say your practice over the last few years has been almost exclusively devoted to mental health issues which i think is a a rising challenge so with parenting rob What are some of the issues in terms of mental health, anxiety, depression in teenagers that you just see come through your office every day?
2: Well, I see a whole age range uh, of of kids uh, carry, and it it varies, I think, where kids are developmentally as well. So, you know, when you're talking about toddlers, um, parents really struggle in those first five years. And I, you know, and it's not just exhaustion and trying to figure out temper tantrums. It's really... Just trying to understand your child's behavior and figuring out, like, am I doing this right? And mm-hmm. so many parents are just thinking to themselves, what if I make mistakes? What if I am, you know, screwing things up for the next yeah. 80 years for my child, right? And, you know, in a way, I mean, the, the, they are right. Those first five years are super important. I mean, the brain is developing, and uh, that's the time when um, all of our actions as parents really have the most impact. And so those first five years are key. So during those years, we see a lot of uh, parents come in with children who are not developing uh, as they should, who may not be speaking yet or socially interacting the way they should. And that's when autism often comes to light. Mm -hmm. So that's a diagnosis I see a lot of. And then we switch over to school years. And then oftentimes it's again, some social difficulties, uh, school difficulties. So kids might be struggling with their learning. And we look at things like ADHD and learning disabilities. Also more high functioning autism uh, comes to light then. Usually doesn't isn't so obvious in those first few years. So in those school years, we see a lot of kids who are struggling with anxiety and, and social difficulties because of high functioning autism. And then the teenagers, I mean, that's a whole new uh, set of issues. A lot of them are dealing with screen time problems and social media and um, cyberbullying. Uh, they have anxiety and depression secondary to a lot of these issues. So, uh, and then parents figure out too, like, I don't have as much influence as I did in the past. And what I try to do now really sometimes falls on deaf ears or goes nowhere. And so I think that's where parents struggle with a lot as well, that they realize oh, my, my days of you know, active parenting I seem to be waning. And what can I do now? So this all shows up in a doctor's office, Absolutely. which is incredible. Well, every yeah, yeah every every single day. And, you know, it's it comes in as you know, a child struggling at school or uh, possible anxiety. But when you look at it, I mean, these are just life issues.
0: I was gonna say, yeah, like because you and I've talked about this, we spent an awful lot of time together. And I mean, I go back to when I was a kid in school. You always had one or two kids who you knew kind of had some learning challenges or something. But I would think a lot of adults would say it seems like the amount of diagnosis has just gone through the roof on this stuff. So the question then becomes, are we diagnosing it more? Or is there actually a greater incidence in the population of, you know, real challenges that kids are struggling with?
2: Well, Carrie. I... I remember when you asked me this about uh, four or five years ago mm-hmm. and uh, I said, you know, I think we're just looking for it more and in more accurate ways. Uh, the stigma around a mental health diagnosis is decreasing. So there's more openness into pursuing a diagnosis, yeah. to looking into it. But over the last four or five years, I would say that mental health issues, especially at school age and teenage years, seem to be increasing. Yeah, And I think there's a lot more pressure socially uh, on kids these days, it's compounded by what I just mentioned with social media and, and screen time and digital addiction issues that I think it is actually happening more now than it is. So
0: it actually is because I remember, and it's funny that you remember I asked you that four or
2: five years ago. I'm like, do you keep a note?
0: <laughs> That's good. We have talked about this in public forums Well, because I before. thought about it a lot afterwards yeah. And, yeah.
2: Uh, you know, and I've been asked that question again and again and people... And the fact that people are asking it again and again makes you realize that people are sensing that it's increasing. And I think the general public does believe and see that mental health issues are actually uh, coming to the forefront. Well, we know, and I'm sure teen
0: suicide is a part of this, but like life expectancy in the United States has dropped three years in a row. And that's in part because of drug overdoses, suicide, but it's the first time since the First World War. I was doing research for my next book on that today. First time since the First World War. And think about why life expectancy dropped in the First World War. You're sending 20-year-olds off to war. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's why life expectancy drops. But now, three years in a row because of the crisis. So you would say at this point, there is not only a greater diagnosis, but a greater incidence.
2: Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And you know, even if you look back historically, and it's hard to do because you can't re- get really good incidents of these sorts of issues at the times when they weren't really looked for that much so for mm-hmm. example in the depression or in the first world war if you try to get a sense of what was the incidence of something like anxiety yeah I mean, even a definition has changed since that time <sighs> what do they
0: call it like was it in the first world war it was like mustard gas sickness or something yeah, it or was or like shell shock shell shock that was it shell, shell shock
2: yeah, yeah. and it would be considered more like ptsd right and so you know, if you think about the whole field of psychology and psychiatry yeah. has matured in those times. But what I was going to say was that, you know, even with our best guess and recognizing that there's some fuzziness in definition, anxiety is now more common than it was, say, during the Depression and during the World Wars when there was obviously a reason to be anxious. Yeah. And now we're dealing with our society is sort of more most prosperous it's ever been. Medical health and and health in general is uh, we have so much opportunity for treatment et cetera now that we didn't in the past and yet these mental health conditions seem to be increasing.
0: So I want to come back to that, but I want to let Tony jump in. So Tony, I mean obviously you're not working directly with kids, right? <laughs> because you're dealing with their parents, couples. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you and again this would be second hand or third hand because you're not dealing with the kids directly. But like when you look at conflict in the home, what were you able to perceive? Obviously, these couples by the time like explain by the time they get to a lawyer's office, things are bad, correct? Just so that people get a a sense of that.
1: Sure. Yeah. I'm. I, I'm not sure what happens in other um, other geographic areas, mm. um, but around here, by the time most people would end up in my office, um, they've already separated maybe two or three years early earlier. Um, they've tried to work things out and it hasn't worked out. And so yeah. they're they're going to a lawyer as a last resort. Yeah. That was the that was the bulk of my experience. Now I, I did have um a few patients. These were um, somewhat few and far between. Um, sorry, not patients. Clients. clients. they patients, mm-hmm. clients <laughs> who right. would come in. And, uh, and and they would be looking for advice before doing anything. So okay. I did have a few people who were being proactive and wanted to know what the uh, what their rights and responsibilities would be. Um, but by far, most people had already separated and the, and they were already struggling with um, what to do now that they were separated and there was no turning back.
0: So talk a little bit about conflict in the home from the perspective of a lawyer. And then I want to jump back into some diagnoses, but like, obviously custody is a big issue, right? What, what are some of the impacts with custody when parents are fighting over who gets their kids? How do you, how do you see that impacting children?
1: Uh, well, I think what you said earlier is right. I wouldn't see kids firsthand Mm. Um, because I, it, well, we were very careful actually to only have adult conversations between adults. Yeah, and so I was always telling my clients um, to protect their kids from the legal proceedings, and uh, and and we actually would make special arrangements if a, if a client happened to bring their kid to the appointment. Right. Um. But uh, what I would hear through parents, sure. Um. And you know. And what I know professionally is um that kids get caught in the middle mm. so uh, around the time of separation there's um it can very often be intense and so both parents are feeling that um that sense of loss that they're they're not going to have contact with their kids every day and there's going to have to be some sharing of the parent time so often there's uh, a, a tug of war over what that time is going to look like and it's pretty hard for parents to protect their kids from that dynamic when it's going on I mean I've seen some parents who do it successfully and um, and oftentimes they've reached out and they've uh, they've either had a therapist help them or they've had a mediator or a pastor or somebody help them get through that negotiation and it the kids don't see much of it it's a it's a difficult time for families.
0: Well, one of the reasons I wanted to have this conversation just to put a lens on this for leaders is, you know, first of all, leadership's hard. We're going to talk about the personal cost of leadership and how you balance your family with two doctors and four kids and how we've done ours, Tony. But part of it as a leader, I think you bring your whole self to work. And uh, I remember a few years ago, we hired I hired someone from Pepsi to come in as a director of operations for me. And she's like, wow, you church people, like you talk about people's personal lives a lot. And she says, you know, at the, she worked at Pepsi. She's like, you know, at Pepsi, it was like, how was your weekend? Oh, you know, Emily and I broke up. I think we're getting a divorce. Oh, okay. Well, what do you, what are you up to at noon? Do you want to um, help me out with this problem? Like that was it. That was the end of the conversation. <laughs> Whereas in, in church world, sometimes we will talk more about that. I think, you know, you think about this as leaders in a company, leaders in a church, your staff, your congregation, your employees, they're coming in with this stuff every day. What's wrong with my child? What's going on, you know, in our home? And I really firmly believe you bring your whole self to work, right? It just is. You bring your whole self. So if you can help, if this gives you some insight into what's going on with, the people that you work with, or anything going on in your own life, I think everybody's better off. So, yeah, for sure, uh, conflict has has damaging um, impact on kids, right?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, if if I can say the the thing that would um, distress me the most as a divorce attorney was when uh, I would see the parents maybe competing for the child's affection. And sometimes that well, so doesn't they, just
0: happen in divorce. <laughs>
1: yeah. yeah <laughs> how sure. would it how would it play out? Well, uh, let's say you know there's a, uh, a tug of war over what Johnny is going to do on Saturday, mm. and you know Dad wants to take him out to the zoo, and Mom wants you know Mom has other plans with family. And so then they might both turn and even, you know, at different times, ask Johnny what he wants. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, you know, a child can often tell when their parent is asking them something, you know, they, they are much more perceptive than we give them credit for. And so uh, a young child will often tell each parent what they think that parent wants to hear, even if it's completely contradictory. They would tell one parent one thing, and they turn around and tell the other parent another thing, and then the parents, you know, that embroils conflict even more between parents. Hmm. So, yeah. Rob. So you can get that kind of dynamic. I'm sure you see some. Yeah, of Rob's that too,
2: nodding. Rob. <laughs> I'm like, okay, Rob, what do you see? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I see this all the time, and unfortunately, uh, because with my visits, that I do have the child there, and the parents are both there. And um, I would say most parents try to be on their best behavior, but you can sense the animosity uh, mm-hmm. between parents sometimes. And you and you know that if I sense it as a stranger, how much more the child would sense that. Yeah. And like Tony said, kids are perceptive. I mean, they don't live in a vacuum. And if I see this in a doctor's office, how much more has it already been seen? Yeah, they're all?
0: being polite in front of you, right? right? Exactly. Theoretically. Exactly. Yeah. Okay, so let's talk about the rise in mental health issues. What do you think some of the factors are that is increasing the incidence of anxiety, stress, depression um, what do you see?
2: Well, and I've alluded to this already too Carrie, is there was a there was a sharp uptick in anxiety and depression when the iPhone was introduced yeah and um, I don't want to harp on this, you know. The whole interview, but we could probably talk about this for an hour. Listen, I'm, right.
0: I'm writing a book and I'm realizing it's a book on technology and how it's messing us up as leaders. Yeah. yeah.
2: And, you know, this is not uh, something that just we have seen in the medical profession. I mean, even Silicon Valley knows this. Okay? Oh, yeah. Um, top executives at uh, the tech companies, uh, they keep their children away from this stuff because they just know how addictive it can be. I mean, they've seen it firsthand. They, well, they were the ones who designed it to be so. And, um, and they know that uh, this, this is something that doesn't need to be in the hands of a two-year-old or a three-year-old because it literally is addictive. And uh, I've seen kids in my office who really, they, they can't take their eyes away from the screen that's in front of them, even just to talk to me for a few seconds. And
0: you've been practicing not 30 years, but 16 years. That, that was not like you see a demonstrable difference in oh, yeah. kids.
2: And that's a good point because 16 years ago when I started, was really pre iPhone. It oh, was pre tablet. Yeah, pre-tablet. yeah. Uh, you. There really was no personal device that were fun to play on. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I had a Palm Pilot. Was your Game Boy. It was Maybe your Palm good. Pilot. No, I, was I was thinking about the Palm Pilot the yeah, other day. I had the color I'm version. like, oh, oh, oh yeah, <laughs> you doctors, you yeah, have everything. Exactly. Yeah, with a stylus. <laughs> yes. <laughs> But, you know, there wasn't, that th- those distractions weren't there. Uh-huh. And uh, at most, you had these little leap pad type things, you know, that oh, yeah, was leap pad. semi-electronic games. But they were kind of lame. They were, yeah, you play with it for an hour and then you're bored and you toss it aside. So you never really had to struggle with that then a few years ago? No. When I started out, this was even, this is a non-issue. Mm-hmm. Um, it really is only in the last, I would say, five, maybe six or seven years that, that technology has, has forced its way into even doctor's appointments to the extent where it's become obviously an issue. And if you ask parents, you know, what, what's the, what's the main struggle at home with your school age child, they'd say, oh, screen time. You know, if we, we try to take it away, meltdown. And we, we, we don't want, you know, we want to decrease its use, but it's impossible for us to do. And well, you have control of the Wi-Fi at your house and, but, Fact is, you need Wi-Fi for everything else. Like everything's mm-hmm. connected. You can't just shut Wi-Fi up. Yeah,
0: you're ordering dinner through and your Wi
2: Fi or you can't just take technology mm-hmm. away from a child either. Like, cause they need it for their homework. They need it for their calculator. They need it for their flashlights. You know, like So, so what's your
0: everything. prescription? Like what do you say? Uh, do you have any recommendations as a pediatrician? Like, you know, I've read a lot of articles that say if they're under three, zero hours of screen time. I mean do you do you have thoughts on that, or or how what, how would you how would you advise parents at different stages?
2: Yeah, for sure. Uh, I mean, there are some well researched and well written guidelines about this specifically. And you're right; toddlers and, and babies don't need screens at all. But you see it at restaurants all the time,
0: right? right? Like you're at a restaurant, and the parents or the grandparents are like, "Here, just play with the phone."
2: Right, and and you know, and sometimes in 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 in, in certain situations, it's a great way just to have the child distracted and you can kind of do something, but they're not meant to be played with for hours and hours on end. And they're also not educational at that age. Like a child does not need that to learn and to develop. I mean, some of these educational programs were initially promoted to be educational. Mm -hmm. And when you actually did the studies, they were not educational.
0: Right, and so, that, so you would say hyper limited for
2: super young kids,
0: absolutely, yeah. Like and, uh, what, twenty minutes a day, half an hour a day, or
2: at most? You know, for okay. the kids that are one, two, three, that they don't need screens at all. Um, wow. And but it's tough, right? Because they're so ubiquitous; they're everywhere. And how how do you avoid them? But, what is the downside? Like, what does that do to a
0: child's brain?
2: Well, if you look at actual studies on a child's brain when they're actually playing these things. It's the same centers that are being stimulated that we see with addiction.
0: And uh, so you're laying the groundwork for addiction is the yeah, theory?
2: Yeah, and this hyperkinetic um, is very is, is very stimulating. It's overstimulating. It prevents kids from falling asleep. They don't get proper sleep. Right. It just, I mean, if you think the brain is wiring at literally like a, something like a million synapses per second, like your brain is actively forming during these stages. It's being wired by what's being stimulated. And so the stimulation that a child's receiving is what's wiring that child's brain. And so if a child is used to seeing like rapid scene changes and things kind of, you know, moving from here one second to there another second, then you bring them to a real farm, they're going to be pretty bored. Well, I mean, you even watch an old Disney film. Have you, right? you watched Mr. Rogers? Mr. Rogers. Like, oh, it's would, great. You know, it's, out, yeah. it's in the news now because of a, a recent movie. But um, if a child watching re- Mr. Rogers would be completely bored. And I've mm. seen this with my own kids. We've seen some movies that I thought were fantastic when I was a kid growing up. And I showed them to my kids now. They're falling asleep. they you know, like lame, yeah. lame. Slow moving, you know, the dialogue is slower. (laughs) Everything just seems to be like, Dad, what's going on here? And if you, and it's true, entertainment has changed in that Uh way because that's how what our kids. Well, this is
0: a whole podcast, but let's keep accelerating through this now because we bit the apple. We better finish it. So, um, very young, none to like minutes a day. And then, what about they get to preschool, kindergarten age?
2: Well, so right now we're being careful to to really not be overly prescriptive about actual times, because, okay. like I said, you just you need those devices for so many other useful things that you didn't in the past, yeah. even a few years ago. For example, I I consume all my news that I, from a screen that I would have normally consumed from a magazine or from a, a newspaper, right. And so all my scheduling happens on my phone now. Um, And like I said, I use it for multiple different uh, purposes that I didn't even a few years ago. And children do that as well. It's expected that they do their homework on a laptop and on a screen. Uh, They're expected to do their research on the internet. And so you can't really say, okay, just many hours, boom. But uh, you can definitely say that for entertainment purposes, one, maybe two hours per day max. All right. The other thing that kind of throws a curveball into this is how much kids are socializing through some of these entertainment. Yeah, that's uh, true. It's platforms. not just a solo pursuit, right? Right. And for some of these kids who are, you know, shy to begin with, who may have some difficulty with socialization, uh, these platforms have become huge places where they socialize. Now, it's mm-hmm. not in a in a in a great and healthy and full way like we do face to face, which is really what we want to promote. But it's perhaps better than them being by themselves, completely isolated, you know, playing video games by themselves. Yeah. So you know what I mean? Like, so it's a bit of a, you know, give and take in that sense, but definitely no screen time before bed, hour and a half before bedtime. You don't want to have any screens. Um, uh, you want to charge your phones downstairs, outside the bedrooms so that you. it's not the first- Even with teenagers? Yeah, for sure. Okay. Oh yeah, it's the rule in our house. The phone stay outside the bedroom when- you know, when they're being charged. You now,
0: know, you, you have a 14-year-old and a 13-year-old and an 11-year-old. Do they push back?
2: Actually, not that much. All right, Rob. <laughs> you said. Well, you, I have yeah. a, I have yeah. a, a very responsible 14-year-old who knows that she needs a certain amount of sleep. And uh, and she's, I mean, I, I check and there's the phone charging up in the family room. So. That's great. But you didn't so far, give them so other good.
0: options. It's You're not undoing crossed. it. Yeah, That's yeah, right. yeah. That's right.
2: No, I remember those teenage years are white, anymore, knuckle years, <laughs> yes.
0: white knuckle years, man. They're white knuckle years, Rob. Okay. And then and that's one thing I wish I could get back. I mean, it was the early days of technology with our boys who are now, by this time this air is 28 and 24. So you go back a decade. And, you know, we didn't have that guideline and I kind of wish we did. That's fair. Okay. What do you say to the parent who's got a 12-year-old who plays Fortnite 20 hours a day? Or, you know, just the, the the parent who shows up with a child in the office who can't even get his or her eyes off a screen to talk to a doctor. Like there's probably a lot of people listening right now going, Hey, that that's my situation. What any advice?
2: Well, when they're when they're twelve and this has been going on for possibly years, I mean, things that are years in the making are can't just change overnight. Yeah. And so you really have to look at a harm reduction type or, you know, risk reduction type approach where you say, okay, let's just cut back a little bit. Mm -hmm. Let's take small steps because things like boot camps and, and, and sudden dramatic changes and instituting hard guidelines instantaneously rarely, um, are that effective. Yeah. And so, and that's true for anything. And, And especially when, when, when kids literally are addicted to some of these things. And Fortnite is addictive. I mean, there's a yeah. class action lawsuit right now in Quebec for my parents suing the makers of Fortnite because their kids are addicted. And, wow. Um, so, so you know, the, 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 you're dealing with like an addictive type issue here.
0: And purposefully addictive. I mean, that's becoming the real story out of Silicon yeah. Valley. Okay. Yeah. I want to come back to that, Tony. Yeah. In your law practice, though, one of the things that happened was, you know, uh, technology, it's not so much addiction, but just use when you're looking at affairs and inappropriate relationships and things that break up marriages. Can you talk a little bit about that from an adult relationship standpoint and how you've seen technology impact the uh, people you're working with?
1: Well, it's no surprise that, you know, there were various um, ways that te- technology would become involved in our clients'. Stories, but, you know, one common one was that um, somebody had reestablished contact with one of their old flings in high school and, uh, or, you know, someone, someone they knew in some place other than job, where they were living. Yeah. 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 And um, started a relationship and that, um, I'm not going to say that that was the cause of the relationship breaking down, but it was a complicating factor. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, Facebook was a, a common place where that where people would get connected with other um, future partners.
0: What's well, really interesting? Oh, go ahead, go ahead. I don't oh, want to stop you off. But- no, no,
1: that's okay. And uh, and then of course, like Facebook totally changed the game with with um, the whole separation process and. Um, what people were doing was all of a sudden public and, you know, who they were with. In a relationship
0: with. Yes, Mm -hmm.
1: exactly. And, you know, so all the details would be online. And also sometimes that, you know, complaints, complaints about um, the other person or or the family situation or whatever, those complaints would all of a sudden become public in a way that it wasn't possible for them to become public 15 years ago. So... Uh, so yeah, it's technology's certainly been a game changer. I think it.
0: one of the things that would get me, Tony, is, is uh, and you can correct my memory or my understanding of it, but like, uh, I remember you saying you had to sort through <laughs> hundreds of text messages in a custody case, right? Mm. And I think a lot of the times we think that these things are very private, but that doesn't always, it doesn't always stay private. Is that right? All that stuff can be evidence,
1: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, these days, really, the bulk of evidence comes from text messages, some Facebook entries, but text is... is Any direct of,
0: messages, lots of text, and that goes hmm. to what? Like, how would how would a court use that?
1: Uh, well, when, let's say it's a, a custody matter, for example... Um, a, uh, if a judge is involved, they may be looking at um, the tone of what's going back and Are forth. Are you a good father? Are things. you an angry dad? Yeah, Are you a like, drunk dad? There, um, yeah. and, and generally, I would um, I would tell um, the people I was working with to make sure that their messages were always um, Biff. We use the acronym Biff. So <laughs> what does brief, that mean? Mm. Brief, informative, friendly, and firm. Um, just to you know, so that. You're not inflaming the issue by, um, you know, denigrating the other person, insulting them, giving subtle jabs. Uh, we wanted to try to encourage peace as much as possible. So, mm-hmm. so Biff, yeah, that was is a surprising. Good to me. guideline. <laughs>
0: okay. Yeah, but you know, you never really think, oh yeah, this is going to be used in court of law one day. But yeah, very much so. Okay, and all this obviously is we're, you know, I'm on the same page you guys are. We're trying to make people healthy. We're trying to help people. Um, but it is, it is a real challenge in a lot of relationships. Okay, uh, Rob, I know you and I have talked about this in public settings before, not on this podcast, but in different messages I've done and that sort of thing. Um, you've got some ideas that I love about how to reduce stress at home like how to parent in a way, because there's a lot of fear-based parenting too. You can't go outside anymore. You can't do this anymore. 24-7, you know, surveillance on kids. Any any thoughts on what can help reduce anxiety
2: in a home setting? Dealing with kids in general who are, let's say, uh, stressful. Yeah. So... And that, you know, as a um, a two or three-year-old having a meltdown in the middle of the grocery store, that's a stressful situation. Having them uh, have a temper tantrum at home uh, because it's bedtime and they don't want to go to bed, you know, that can be stressful. There's a lot of opportunities for parents to really react in a very similarly stressful way. And I think the key for keeping that level of drama down is for us as parents to engage at a whole different level with the, with our kids. And really, um, I love what um, uh, Dan Siegel says in one of his books, the, the Whole Brain Child and in No Drama Discipline, where he talks about really connecting first, mm. emotionally with your child, no matter what they're doing. I mean, when they are at the extreme with their behavior, to that child at that time, that makes perfect sense to them. I mean, that is it makes perfect
0: problem. sense to me when I'm
2: out of control. Yeah, like,
0: you know, and that because at that <laughs> as time, an adult, <laughs> that's the best thing
2: that they can think of to do. Yeah. And you know, they have limited skills, they have limited um, experience, uh, they they just don't know what's going on sometimes. And for them, at that moment, that's the best thing that they can think of. And if we view it that way, that you know with more skills and more time and more wisdom as they grow up they'll start to make better decisions and we as parents have to emotionally connect with us so what children. does that mean your kids melting down in the grocery store what do you do you stay calm okay. you get down to their level you look at them in the eye you tell them what you're going through must be hard i'm right here and i understand or i i've been through this before like
0: and you know well, what you i've said. never done that have well, you done that with your kids
2: yes what, what happens? Well, because, well, your worst fear, of course, that every looks like in the grocery store and goes, what a pushover. Like, mm. you know, <laughs> dad's giving right in <laughs> their yeah, yeah, kids. Yeah. And you know, and they'll think, oh, you're spoiling your child. You know, you're kind of promoting or positively reinforcing this type of behavior. But what your kid needs most of that time is to actually connect. I mean, they're in distress. They yeah. are, they don't, they're not liking this either. And at least 99% of the time, that is the case. And if you can emotionally connect with them, Just bring down the level of drama. And sometimes, you know, if it's in the middle of a huge, busy situation, you got to remove them from that situation in order for them to calm down. I understand that. And sometimes you have to abandon what you're doing and say, okay, let's just go somewhere else. But you got to emotionally connect before you can redirect. Mm. And so that whole principle, I think, is would if parents just got that, you know, I think that would take. A huge I think difference. I'm way better
0: positioned to do that now as a guy in my 50s than I was as a dad in my 30s because I was emotionally escalated when my kids got emotionally escalated or when we would get emotionally escalated. Tony, it just triggers you as a parent, well, right? I,
2: I was like this, and I, yeah. I you know, I, and we still get pulled into. It. None of us are perfect. Yeah, I mean, I'm here. I am as a pediatrician and a parent, and I've been through this now for years and years still happens to me. And we, oh sure, you know, and no parents. Yeah. Your is, kids trip you. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. But what about
0: um, stuff like letting them play in the backyard or letting your kids get bored or yeah. things like that? Do you have some other advice for just like, what do you think of free range parenting or well some of those series that are out yeah, there?
2: We've become really um, in, in many ways overprotective of our kids. And we want yeah. our kids to be resilient, right? We want our kids to, to know, uh, know what it's like to go through difficult situations. They grow from that. Right, can insulate them from Yeah, and, and in some ways, uh, we've become a, a very protected society. Uh, there is stress and there's toxic stress. You want to keep your child away from toxic stress. But day-to-day stress is perfectly reasonable for them to experience. Now, it has to, again, be geared toward their age and their level of experience and their developmental stage. But having them experience failure, you know, not passing a test or not getting picked to the team or having a friend break up with them or, you know, all those experiences are necessary to grow. I mean, those are stressors that we need to teach our children, come alongside them and teach them like, hey, you can get through this. Right. And if we protect them from all these sorts of scenarios
0: or go and fight the teacher, the coach or whatever.
2: Yeah. So um, I think we need to be a bit more open to Having our kids take some risks and and do things for the first time, um, sometimes it's not gonna work out, and that's okay. Yeah.
0: Tony, I want to shift gears and talk a little bit about the stresses and the tensions that couples face. Um, and Rob, feel free to to chime in as well. But you know, you just went through years of listening to couple after couple come in and complain. So what are the frequent flyer issues? What are the ones that would show up? uh you know your top 3 to 5 issues that couples seem to be struggling with in in their relationships
1: i'm going to answer this from my experience um, uh-huh. because the stats may vary from one place yeah, to yeah, yeah. another totally. one country to another yeah. but um in in my experience what i saw a lot of were um couples who had just lost their connection with each other yeah. Um, I would often hear the comment that you know we haven't had sex in years. Actually, is what I would hear. That was pretty frequent. Um, but well, yes, yeah, mm. it was sadly. And uh, I would hear about drifting that mm. they just drifted apart. And sometimes, what happened with the in the drifting cases was often a matter of scheduling. It was. Um, it sometimes happened with you know couples who started out with all the best intentions. And they decided to work their schedule so that uh, there would be no need for any um, third-party caregivers for the kids. Oh, in But other they're words. both working. Yeah. So they arrange a, um, a, an opposing schedule in a sense. So, you know, dad's out working while mom's home with the kids and then mom's out working when dad's home with the kids and they um, they arrange their schedule that way. But then the problem is there just isn't enough time for, right. for the so marriage. On the one
0: hand, that makes sense. Yeah, it's sure.
1: It makes sense, but it it, it's uh, the the proviso is that you still need time to connect, and it also creates strain um, for each uh, for each of them as parents when they they always have that experience of single parenting. Mm. And you know, my heart goes out for single parents because it's a it's definitely um, you know it's harder to parent as one parent than it is with two parents present. It's just, you know, how you can spell each other off if there's two people there. But if there's one person there, then the buck stops with you and y- you deal with everything that's going on. So um, it's just when that is a chronic schedule for the family, it it just seems to create more stress. Yeah. So I would see that. Um, I would definitely see... Um, people who had a lot of financial pressure and just weren't on the same page with what to do with finances. It was a a constant theme.
0: It's funny. I know the Canadian stat on this and we're all Canadians, but it's something like most Canadians live within $200 of not being able to meet all of their obligations in the course of a month. And I mean, debt is through the roof and the whole deal. So there's a lot of financial stress.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that would definitely show up in my office, and then they got to pay
0: a lawyer. And, yeah, well, <laughs> right? yeah. that
1: would be yeah. the icing on the cake. And then uh, the other thing I think I saw quite a bit of was was just influence. And I've I sort of coined a term: beware the cheerleaders. I love
0: that. And, it's so good. Talk about it. Talk about yeah, it. It's one of my so favorite things you talk about.
1: I I would sometimes um, work with somebody. And, you know, I would see the text messages between them. I would hear their exchanges when we, if we got together around the same table, I would hear them talk to each other. And sometimes my impression was, wow, I don't really understand why the two of you broke up because it really seems like you have a a baseline of respect for each other and you seem to actually still work together quite well. And then uh, I would learn more about what was happening. Maybe I would even ask my client, you know, what do you think happened? And sometimes I would get the answer that, um, that their ex had a friend who just went through a divorce or their, uh, in their family, they had other family members who had been divorced. And it just, it seemed that there was this, almost this gravitational pull yeah. And sometimes there was even a, uh, a cheerleader whispering in the ex's ear, um, things like, you know, you go girl and you're a warrior. And, you know, that this was, um, it was just He's a, a, a form of camaraderie mm-hmm. uh, around um, leaving the marriage. And so I, I'm all, I'm only saying all of this because um, it really did seem to be a factor in some cases. I'm not going to say in... The majority of cases, but it is a continuing theme of what I would see.
0: No, it, I'm, I'm glad you talked about that, Tony, because I mean, we've had friends, uh, you know, a guy I've walked through and he really wanted to stay together and his wife, and I don't know the whole story, but I'm just saying from where he sat and where I sat, it was like lots of friends around her going, drop him, get rid of him. You can do better than this, you know, and it just crushed him, mm-hmm. absolutely crushed him. Interesting, but that drift, right? There, I, I remember some of the stories you would tell. It's just like I don't know. Like we've been through stuff in our marriage, and it seems like we overcame a lot more things than maybe even some of the people that ended up not staying together. Is that mm-hmm. fair?
1: Yeah, I just want to. I just want to interject here. Yeah. Um, and uh just clarify that I, I was not actually talking about specific people when I was talking to you. I would talk about trends. Oh yeah, I no, hundred percent in general, what I was seeing in my office, but I just didn't want to leave our listeners with the impression that I was coming home and you know, spilling out my clients' experiences from that day.
0: No, 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 that's not what I meant at all. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Rob, do you want to do some marriage counseling right now
1: in the middle yeah, yeah, of this yeah, podcast yeah, yeah.
0: interview? Like, are we on now or are we not? Yeah, no, we're on now. No, no. And uh, you know what? That's one thing that I totally respect about you is you are your integrity is absolutely intact. And no, but I mean, you see trends, right? And trends mm-hmm. really interest me and that whole business. Now, that one case I was talking about, that was actually a friend of mine um, mm-hmm. personally that I was trying to, counsel through and help through. And it was just, it's just heartbreaking to see. But the more I understood it, the more I'm like, oh, of course that's how it happens.
1: Mm-hmm. You know, yes. that makes a
0: lot of sense.
1: Yeah. I, I think the other thing that I, that I heard over and over in my office, um, was that the other party was emotionally abusive. Oh, so yeah. I, I think I heard that from almost every single client. And these days it seems like, you know, there's, um, there's a lot of information out there there's a lot on the internet and um it's almost a case where you know if you go looking for something you'll find it so i'm i'm not saying this to say that there aren't cases where some you know where a spouse is actually emotionally abusive um but i saw that in conflict often this this sort of dysfunctional conflict that was happening was way more mutual than people wanted to admit that it was. And maybe mm. their dysfunctions looked different, um, but the truth was closer to, well, yeah, maybe you guys are sort of emotionally abusing each other. <laughs> yeah. It's not really just heading in one direction.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Rob, uh, you obviously observe adults as well. Anything you want to add to that? The issues that you see show up, particularly when you've got you know a common issue, which is your child isn't doing well by the time they get to the doctor's office.
2: Yeah, well, and a child not doing well can often be a, a huge difficulty for um, a couple that's already struggling in other mm. ways too. And we we've seen even the best marriages fall apart when a child has a chronic illness or a severe illness, and uh, it's just such a huge stressor that unless you're really strongly and tightly on the same page, uh, something that can break a marriage as well. Mm
0: um a lot of people think hey it's just going to be better we got to end this thing and let's just move on and things will be better in the next relationship Uh, any comments on that and and how that went i mean obviously tony you're writing a book that would suggest hey (laughs) as far as it depends on you try to stay together so why have you come to that conclusion
1: oh great question um I think we've, you know, this isn't something that that only we would have observed. I think people have seen this in general that, um, you know, you are you inside your marriage and you are you when you leave the marriage. Yeah. And so, you know, it, you, you can't leave you. And what I would see sometimes is that people would um, have sort of a, almost a victim mentality where, you know, I'm, I'm the victim of my spouse in this marriage and, you know, I need to leave it because I need to protect myself. You know, I just need safer emotional space. And, um, and sometimes that's very true. Um, But sometimes it's a a case where you're just not really recognizing um, the part that you're playing in the conflict and so, yeah, in my in my book, I am encouraging people to have a second look and see whether there's some way, even if it's a small part in what's going on, seeing if you can own that part and um, in taking some steps to address it, you know, maybe you'll find that things get better. You know, sometimes it can be an upward cycle rather than a downward spiral.
2: Yeah.
0: Well, the way you and I, when we've taught on this before, because we've spoken on it together, it's like eventually your emotions catch up to your obedience. And that's been Mm. what we've discovered in our relationship. There were seasons where I think you weren't very emotionally excited about being married to me. And there was about 13 minutes where I wasn't very excited about being married to you. It was probably shorter. (laughs) But um, I think what we discovered is if you, it's a long obedience in the same direction and eventually your emotions catch up to your obedience. Rob, uh, you and Rose, two doctors, busy couple, four kids. Um, What are some practices that have really helped you as couples Mm -hmm. slash parents, as a couple slash parents in terms of, wow, when we do this, we do a lot better and our kids do better. And when we blow it, things start to fall apart pretty quickly.
2: Yeah, I I would not be where I am uh, without... Rose being on yeah, my side. Yeah, I'll tell you that she's right great. now. She's uh, an incredible uh woman and uh, an amazing wife uh and uh, she's been an incredible co-parent for our kids. So I cannot say enough good things about Rose, but I mean what has gotten us to this stage? It, it has not been, you know, glorious every single day. Yeah. I mean, we go through rough patches too. And it's it's an interesting thing because I I've, I I realize when I'm going through a rough patch, she's she's got the strength to help me through it. And when she's going through a rough patch I'm actually in a position to help her through it I'm not sure if that's just a providential thing or if that's uh. just the way it works out but it seems like we're there for each other at the right times and uh, I'm strong when she needs me and she's strong when I need her and I think that's sort of a chemistry that has served us as re- as really well but you know in the busyness of life and it gets busy I mean we're like you said we're both um, professionals we we work. Uh, long hours, overnight shifts, sometimes uh, with four kids. Uh, I think two things: taking time for ourselves, even yeah. when it seems selfish. It's like oh, we got to get childcare for our kids so that we can get away for one or two nights. Do it.
0: You guys are some of the best I know at that, and have been for years. Yeah, like- but
2: yeah, and, and thanks, Carrie for noticing that. When we do do it intentionally. We always say we should do it more, and. I feel guilty sometimes for leaving our kids, you know, with a-, a caregiver, especially when they were younger. But taking that time away was time for us to dream, to reminisce. It's funny because about an hour into our dinner on that first night away, we're like, "I miss our kids. They're so great." You know. <laughs> and then of course we get back. You know, an yeah. hour after we get back, yeah, you know, a couple like, of days oh, later, it's I like, miss being away. Oh, "Man, let's get away from here. <laughs> so it's, it's busy." <laughs> Um, but working on it. And the other thing that is that I, and I give Hunt Rose 100% credit for this, is talking about issues when they come up. So I mm. come from a um, sort of a background where, you know, you kind of sweep things under the rug and kind of worry about it at another time and let things sort of fizzle out and die down. That Good rate. Dutch culture. Yeah, yeah it Robert? never yeah. fizzles out and dies out. No. <laughs> it's always in the background and yeah. if you don't deal with it. And Rose comes from a very strong belief that to talk about things. And so keeping the lines of communication open all the time, communication is so key. If you if you can talk to your spouse and they're receptive, you can work through problems. And this takes practice. I mean, we screw up all the time and that's probably me most of the time, but you know, we we don't do this perfectly all the time, but the more you do it, the easier it becomes.
0: And I know this is a little bit unfair because you're both physicians and obviously, you know, that comes with some resources, but how many times a year would you try to get away together without the kids?
2: I would say probably three to four months. I think we we would try to get away.
0: It always amazed me. I mean, we tried to do it once a year. We mm-hmm. were on a pastor's budget, so it was a mm-hmm. little bit different, but you know, we would try to get away once a year. And we found almost none of our friends did that mm-hmm. when their kids were younger. And I always really admired that in you and Rose. And I saw it in your relationship because mm-hmm. you guys,
2: you know, you don't have a perfect marriage, but you have a good one, a strong one. Oh, no, we, yes, yeah, I feel that way. And the way I know that is because when I've had a long, hard and busy day, I look forward to coming home and uh, I know that my kids are going to be there. Rose is going to be there. And I, you know, I, I come down the driveway, I turn the radio in the car off. It's quiet and I come home and I'm, I'm glad I'm there. It's, yeah. a, it's a place of refuge for me. And that's, and that's really what I wish for all the parents and families that I see is that home is a place where you love to be. Mm. And I, I, I just wish that for everybody.
0: Yeah. The other thing I would say too is both of you are pretty semi serious athletes. I mean, you will you will cycle eight or nine thousand miles a year. I mean, you've done that. You've mm-hmm. hit the you've you do the Tour de France route sometimes in Europe. Yep. And Rose and you do marathons and triathlons and do. Yeah. Rose is the runner.
2: She she uh, she takes running pretty seriously. Mm-hmm. She tries to get a run in almost every day, and she's I think done something like ten marathons now. And that's only since the kids were born. I mean, she's not a runner growing up. And so after Jacob, our, our, our youngest was born, uh, she just started running. And I remember I gave her a bike as a present when Jacob was born, our last one. Mm. And then and, and she still rides, she's done triathlon. So yeah, I think physical exercise, and by the way, physical exercise is part of my recipe for mental health in general. Yeah. I mean, I talk to every single family about this for their kids. Sleep, diet, and exercise. I mean, those are what I call the three no-brainers of mental health. Yeah. And then we practice that ourselves as much as possible too. Like
0: we, no, but you always spelled each other off. It would be like I'll get right. the kids. You go for a run. Totally. I got the kids, Rob. You go for a ride. Yeah, we
2: prioritize it. I knew yeah. that Rose day would be better if she was able to get out for a run. She knows I'm. I'd have a, you know a better night sleep if I was able to go for a bike ride. And so we did. We made, we purposely made time for each other for that kind of stuff. Yeah. And you know, yeah. it's funny cause we have, <laughs> we're on crazy busy weekends. We're looking at each other and going like, hey, you know, if we get divorced, we get every other weekend off. You know? <laughs> <laughs> of the kids.
1: <laughs>
2: it's like, we seriously uh, looked at each other sometimes uh, when there was the mayhem all around us and there was diapers to be changed and there was crying kids. It's like, hmm, every uh, other weekend off, eh? That sounds pretty good. <laughs> so it
0: sounds good right
2: now. No, I but love of your marriage. No, like Long term, now it's been great.
0: Well, Tone, how about some things looking back? Our kids are older. We're not in the thick of it, but what would you say? We'll be uh, almost thirty years married by the time this episode airs. Isn't that yes. crazy?
1: Yes. Wow. Yeah. Are you that old? <laughs> uh, yeah, well, you're
0: not. I know that. That's a good thing, husbands. That's what you should say. Um, what are some things that you think looking back now on three decades of marriage have been our better moments? Some really good practices that, because we're, we're in a, like, I think a fun season. Is that fair? Do we need Rob to mediate our marriage again?
1: No, no. that's uh, absolutely fair. Yeah, this is a great season. Yeah. Yeah, and it, what- has been for, it has been for the last several years the last several minutes mm. yeah it's been great <laughs>
0: um what what has made it what has made it strong at this point looking back what are some best practices because there's a lot of people a lot most most listeners are much younger and they're just starting out so what would you recommend
1: uh i agree with rob that um dealing with issues when they come up rather than allowing them to fester is uh, is a great practice. Yeah, who's good at but- that? By the way,
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> this is marriage therapy. We, <laughs> could,
1: we could debate over that,
2: <laughs> but it takes such discipline, doesn't it, Tony? Like,
1: yes, just, it doesn't.
2: I mean, sometimes you have to do it when you don't want to or feel like doing it.
1: Absolutely, yeah. and and you also have to have the judgment to um to not go ahead if one of you is triggered, and you know we've had those moments where you know, somebody's pushed somebody else's button and, you know, mm-hmm. we're no longer calm, cool, and collected, but, you know, we're hitting the uh, high anger point. That's not a good time to talk about your issues. Yeah. I think we learned that at that point, we have to walk away, take a break, let each other cool down, and then come back to it at the right time. Yeah. So if it's a more urgent issue, maybe you come back to it later that day or... um Whenever, within hours. Um, but if it's not an urgent issue, maybe you set, set a time. You know, maybe we set a time. Yeah, we've for actually done that three three days from now in the evening at seven o'clock. We're going to pick this issue up again. So uh, I think that's been helpful, Carrie, because I think we fell into the trap of um, forging ahead, and we also fell into the trap of not understanding each other's wiring in mm-hmm. the early years of our mm-hmm. marriage. So. You know, whereas you're an eight, I think you've told your listeners before Enneagram that eight. you're an yeah. Enneagram eight and you tend to be a challenger. Aren't so you, lucky? you mm-hmm. will go after an issue until it's resolved. Will beat
0: it to death. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm.
1: and meanwhile, I'm a, I'm an Enneagram five. Um, mm-hmm. I tend to not even process my feelings in the moment. You are a puzzle. And, <laughs> and I, I have to have some processing time. So, uh, sometimes resolving an issue on the spot really isn't yeah. even wise.
0: Yeah. A beautiful puzzle, but a puzzle.
2: But you know, <laughs> it's interesting <laughs> though, because, Tony, what you've just pointed out there is the concept of connect, then redirect. You know, no, yeah. I was I to bring it all back,
0: you know, you re- she really married
2: a three-year-old. <laughs> no, but you're no, saying, yeah. Carrie's having a good temper Sometimes. tantrum. You know, get down to his eye level or up to his eye level, and you know, bring it. But you know, it's, but that's the key, isn't it? Like yeah. you know, to kind of, yeah. if you want to tie this together, what you're teaching your kids at three and four and five. Are principles that they should be able to carry on for the rest of their life into mm. their adult mm. relationships and so if you can teach them that you know hey first emotionally connect and then you can think about you know talking about kind of what's going on and, and how to solve this next time and how to prevent something from happening next time and flaring up what a skill for a child to learn and bring into their adolescent and adult relationships yeah. absolutely.
0: I think that's a really good point. You are kind of in your parenting teaching your kids how to connect with their future spouse, their future partner. Tony, anything else you'd add to that, that looking back is like, oh, that was a good practice?
1: We, I think we were deliberate about having regular date nights. Yeah. And, uh, and, you know, that was, it's crucial when you've got all the busyness you were mentioning, Rob, you know, Busy household. Um, in our case, both parents were working, but parents are busy, whether one's staying at home or one's working outside of the house or not. Um, but just taking that time and and not feeling guilty about taking the time. I, I think that's what I observed with a lot of our friends um, was that they had really sometimes even just discounted the possibility of going out without the kids mm-hmm. because. Their kids needed them to be home, but actually your kids need you to have a strong, solid relationship um, as much as possible. And so giving that time actually isn't selfish from the perspective of your kids. It's, It's supportive. For your kids.
0: I think one of the things you and I figured out fairly early and money was extremely tight, particularly in the first decade of ministry where we were thinking about, you know, groceries and what we're going to buy and, you know, label or no name or all that stuff. But I think both of us started to see date night not as an expense, but an investment. And that mm-hmm. didn't mean that we had to, you know, spend 150 bucks on dinner. It just meant no that the babysitter and whatever we chose to do that night and getting away and prioritizing it, was actually an investment in the future. And that's paid off like, I think, 10,000 times for the investment over the years too. Oh, absolutely.
1: Well, and and we were creative with it too. So we had groups of friends who we would um, trade- Babysitting time with so yeah, you know the, all the kids would come over to our place and they would be free and then all the kids would go over to their place and we would be free so we would just take turns and it worked out. Hard well. to
2: do when you've got four kids though. Well, you have four yeah. kids. Yeah, you're <laughs> the the parent. Parent. like one yeah. or two. Like, Robin Rose uh, are not in that club. Yeah, I'm not going <laughs> <laughs> to them. You have to do your own club for that. Uh, but when you talk about the, return on investment, in a way, yeah. I mean, especially when you're talking about. Um, when the kids are gone eventually, right? And it's oh, yeah. just the two of you left. If you haven't invested in your marriage and in your relationship when you had the kids, um, and I'm in a situation where I've got four kids all close together, it's going to be empty. It's going to be over. Like rapid.
0: You're going to send Maddie, Maddie to university and that's going to be it.
2: And like three boom. years later, boom, yeah. boom, boom. They're all going to be gone ideally. Um, uh, but you know, then what's left? What do you have left? Like what have what have you worked on over these last you 15, years? You have a lot years? of time together. Yeah. Let me tell you that. Yeah. You better like each other. Absolutely. We do. <laughs> You'll probably have more time without your kids than you ever had with your kids. And you never stop being a parent. Like, it's mm. true. Like, I know, you know, you guys have kids that are, that are adults now. You're on the uh, other side
0: of the yet. world as we speak right now. So, <laughs>
2: <Yeah>. <laughs> right. But We have never, a lot of time together. It's different, but obviously, <laughs> you, you probably never stop being a parent. You always oh, no, think no, about no. them, but it's different every day. And, um, it's now. It's just the two of you primarily at home, right? It is, mm-hmm. and it's true. We took
0: some steps years ago to even do hobbies together to get to know each other better, like you're dating again, because uh, we're kind of dating every day now, and we'll be hopefully for decades.
1: Yeah, and that was a process too. I, yeah. I remember when we first were, when we first got started, um, both of us had pretty different interests. Like mm-hmm. there was no. I liked eating, thing. and you liked
0: exercise. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Yeah, and there was a time when exercise wasn't really a priority for you, but that has changed. I hated it. And yeah, we've, we managed to figure out that we both liked cycling and you decided to put up with hiking and some snowshoeing. You Any you like camping
2: though, Tony? Uh, no, I struck
1: out on the camping. It's <laughs> really
0: unchristian, Rob. So, <laughs> yeah, no, but we found stuff that we love doing together. We do love to travel together, although we travel differently. Like you have an ideal, and I have an ideal, but we figured out how to make all that stuff work. And there's nobody I'd rather be with. Like, mm. and it's fun. You know, you and I talk about this a lot, but we spend a lot of time together. Like, I learn new stuff every day. And if we have a 20-minute car ride into town, I'd rather have it with you than have it alone. That's a fun place to be after three decades. So,
2: okay. You want me just to leave now? Yeah, you can leave now. Go, Rob. (laughs) Go. Actually, before you go,
0: (laughs) tell us about the Smart Family Podcast. Because this is really, you're going to deep dive into everything we talked about and a whole lot more on this new podcast, which just went live. So tell
2: us about it. Yeah, so it's called the Smart Family Podcast and uh, I think it's a unique opportunity where Tony and I can both bring our our personal and our clinical experience mm-hmm. to um to parenting and to family relationships in general. I think there's so much out there that's that's valuable and uh, to bring it into a podcast setting where it's in easy to uh, easy-to-digest format for busy parents. It's and shorter than families. my podcast, <laughs> correct. everything shorter than my podcast other than Joe Rogan. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so to bring it into that format, I think is really useful for parents. Um, and our goal really is uh, for families to thrive and for mm-hmm. relationships within families to thrive, whether that's siblings, uh, parents and, and, and children, or parents, uh, husbands and wives. I mean, there's so many awesome relationships that need to develop in that family setting. Um, We want that to happen for every single listener that's out there uh, to the point where, I mean, our line is, we we want you to love being home. Mm -hmm. We want you to love coming home. We want you to love being home with your uh, kids and with your spouse. Tony, what's the format of the
0: podcast? Uh,
1: We'll have an interview with either um, a person, a, a couple, someone who has either expert uh, research, we we want to look into uh, brain development, for example, the neuroscience. We want to take some of the science behind um, recommendations for parents and also um, interview thought leaders in the areas of parenting and marriage, um, just so we can help help people build strong, long-lasting relationships and family bonds that endure
0: quick uh, smattering of your guests just to give us a sample uh, who 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 are you going to be interviewing it's already live so you can probably head on over and subscribe what's the website is it smartfamilypodcast.com yes okay great so who who are you interviewing give me you got some doctors and new york times bestselling authors and
2: yeah we do we're we've been very fortunate to um, to get some great guests on the show to bring a variety of perspectives um, and who we've interviewed, we have uh, Dr. Ross Green, who's behind the amazing book, The Explosive Child. Mm-hmm. We have uh, Dr. Mike Gurion, who talks a lot about boys and girls and how they think differently. Uh, we have uh, Gary Chapman, who has uh, spoken, uh, who has really spoken around the world to millions of people about the five love languages.
1: Yeah, we've uh, also interviewed Sissy Goff. Um, mm-hmm. She wrote a book called Raising Worry-Free Girls all about um, girls and and anxiety. And uh, Ann Voskamp and her husband, Daryl, will be on the podcast. I'm so excited
0: uh, for that one. Absolutely. You and the farmer, Anne and the farmer. That's <laughs> yes. going to be great. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So uh, we've got a great lineup. We're very excited.
0: And don't you have the guy who wrote the book, One, Two, Three? What is that one? One, Two, Three
1: Magic.
2: One, Two, three magic. three magic. Yeah. You think about that. Doctor. So what is the story behind that? Yeah, I'm, well, you just count Dr. to three with your kids. Dr. Tom Phelan, he's the the master and one of the original, I think, uh, um, uh, experts uh, on on parenting and
0: discipline. Man, yeah. I had no idea that was a book or like where that came from, but yeah. I use that on my kids so many times. You sit down there, one, two. Three, I'm like, what happens if they, but three works, it's magic, it's true. Yeah, it must be a billion dollar empire. Well, it works best if you only
2: have to get the two.
0: Yeah, exactly, I mean? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I was always worried. Sometimes I went to five, but anyway, you know, okay, so uh, it's great and the the idea is to love being home. So uh, we will link to that in the show notes and you can get it at smartfamilypodcast.com. Subscribe, well, anywhere you get this podcast too, right?
1: That's
0: right. Dr. Rob Meter. My love, Tony Newhoff. <laughs> Great to have you on the show today. Thanks, Hey, Carrie. thank you. Well, if you want more, and my guess is you probably do, probably the best thing you can do is just subscribe to the Smart Family Podcast. It's available anywhere that you get podcasts. It's with Tony Newhoff and Dr. Rob Meter. And you can also go to smartfamilypodcast.com. They're going to be featuring articles. They've got a lot of guests lined up. It's a monthly podcast, so it's not going to overwhelm your feed. But they got a few launch episodes this month, including some thought leaders, some psychologists. It's, It's going to be a fascinating show. So I'm super excited for this one. Happy to bring it to you. If you want links to anything that we talked about in the interview, you can find it at kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 320. And remember to stay tuned because I got this new segment uh, coming up called What I'm Thinking About. I'm going to talk to you about why email is so much sexier than you think. I think it's a vastly underrated tool. In the meantime, uh, well... We've got uh, new shows coming up. James Emery White is back. Claire Diaz-Ortiz, who was with Twitter in the early days. Adam Duckworth from Travelmation. Mark Driscoll. Lisa Turkhurst. Oh, man. So many people coming up. I am so excited for what's ahead. If you subscribe, you get it all for free. And here is a preview of the next episode coming up where I sit down and talk with Chris Hodges and Brad Lominick.
1: You know, when the Jewish people will teach it, they say... You don't rest because
2: you're tired, you got tired. You rest so you don't get tired. So, it re- so you don't end the week with the Sabbath. So it's not the recouping of all the hard work. You start the week with Sabbath. You rest well enough so you have a full tank to go into the week. And that's what I've noticed, Carrie, is that now I go into the week just with a full tank in my body, and my soul, and in my spirit. And so I am not. I don't feel like I'm catching up all the time uh, in my mind and in my
0: heart. So subscribers, you get that automatically. And uh, hey, thank you to everybody who's leaving ratings and reviews as well. Okay, so we're going to jump into this brand new feature. I feel like I need music or something like that. It's just called What I'm Thinking About. And it's a chance to share with you some of the thoughts that I have. And make sure you check out, by the way, the offers we have with our partners today at RethinkLeadership.com. Use the coupon code RL20CARRY. Uh, and you can get 20% off before the end of February. And if you haven't yet checked out Planning.Center, Planning Center at Planning.Center, make sure you do so because they are adding features all the time that can really help your team. So here's what I'm thinking about I'm thinking about email because people are always, you'll see this is a regular subject that we have on this podcast about how do you get noticed online. It's a noisier and noisier and angrier world. And one of the things that consistently, flies under the radar for any organization, for businesses, for churches, for -for not-for-profits is email. Email is way sexier than it sounds. And it's probably the most ignored tool in your content sharing toolbox. You're thinking, I got to, you know, crush it on TikTok, on YouTube, on social media. Yeah, but it doesn't convert. Nothing converts like email. You talk to anybody in e-business, they'll tell you nothing converts like email. And so you're probably, if you're a content provider or an organization of any size, you're probably sitting on email addresses. And the question is, what are you doing about them? Because most people are like, not much, right? Okay, if we have an event, sure, we'll email the list and tell them about it. If you're a business, you've got a sale and it's like, hey, 20% off, 30% off, whatever, whatever. But here's why email is so valuable. It is the only tool in your arsenal right now that isn't yet controlled by an algorithm. See, it used to be that you would have a far broader reach on Facebook, on Instagram. I mean, most of you remember when Instagram was a feed that you could scroll through and you would see the bottom of your feed. This is everybody you're following and then move on. Well, that that isn't possible anymore because Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, TikTok, all kinds of social media are using algorithms and they determine what you see which means that you only get through to a very small portion of your audience, as anybody who takes online marketing seriously knows. Email is different, all right? Email gets through almost 100% of the time, and if it ends up in a spam filter, well, that's still rare. Like, nobody sorts your email. So I started moving to almost daily emails two years ago, and the results have been explosive. Um, I worried that everybody was going to unsubscribe, that people would get upset. In fact, people daily express gratitude and the number of people who subscribe every day actually greatly outpaces the number of unsubscribes. We have a really tiny unsubscribe rate for an email list of about 56,000 leaders that I email regularly. We might get uh, anywhere from a dozen to two dozen to maybe 40 unsubscribes a day and as many as 50 to 100 subscribes every day. Now, what are some keys to that? The key is to use your list to serve not just to sell. A lot of us, the only time we ever email, it's like, hey, I need money or hey, there's a sale or hey, come to my event. Uh-uh. Use your email list to serve, not to sell. You can be different. And so what I try to do, and many of you are on my email list, by the way, is I just send out a really short email. Usually it's under hundred words. Sometimes it's longer And it's like, hey, here's what I've been thinking about. Here's a leadership problem you may be facing. Here's a link to an article. Usually it's something I wrote that um, can help you with that. And away we go. And the filter I use for those emails and hopefully for all my content is just a single word, helpful. I want that email to be helpful so that when you open it, you're like, oh, I'm glad I read that. And um, if you use helpful as a filter and you use your email list to serve, not to sell, you're going to see a few things happen. Number one, people will actually express gratitude for it. Number two, you're probably going to see your number of subscribers grow. Number three, you're going to see your uh, open rate increase. For a List My Size, we have an over 25% open rate. I think it's like 28%, which is like crazy. And so just think of email as a way to help your audience. And doing something for them many more times than you ask something from them will make your audience really look forward to hearing from you. It's not that you can't sell via email. I have course launches, et cetera, et cetera. But when they've been helped by you 10 times for every time you ask something from your audience, uh, it changes. So that's what I'm thinking about right now. That's what I would love for you to consider is uh, how are you using your email? Because I think in most leaders' cases, it's tremendously underutilized. So think about, talk about this with your team. What can we do to help people using an email strategy? Well, guys, I hope that helped you. Thank you so much for listening to the very end. And I hope our time together today has helped you lead like never before. You've been listening to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast.